This morning is September 9th. It is 2007. And our message this morning is called Discontented. Discontented. If I tell you that uh, you're discontent, is that usually a compliment? No. In fact, as soon as I mentioned it to one of our brothers and sisters this morning, they said, oh, well, we're supposed to be content in all situations, right? And I was so proud. The woman who told me that, her life is being trained by the Word, and that's the first thing that came to mind. But like preachers do, I'm going to take a little different angle on this this morning. There are some things that you're supposed to be discontented with. Let me give you the definition that comes from the American Heritage Dictionary and see if that helps you with this. Discontented, a restless longing for better circumstances. Now, come on, could that be a good thing? For you to have a restless longing for better circumstances. I want to submit to you this morning that all of us have something at work inside of us. And it's what we do with it that determines whether or not we're in God's will. Some time ago, so many years ago, I got to a place in life where I suddenly was not content with the status quo anymore. The things that everyone else was excited about, I could no longer be excited about. The things that had brought me pleasure in the past no longer brought me pleasure. And my life suddenly began to feel hollow. And I was discontented. I was discontent with those circumstances. Have you never been standing in a circle of people and they're talking about how wasted they got the night before and you just can't understand what they see in that? Ever watch people talk about their fleshly pursuits? And A long time ago, you gave that up, not because you were burning with passion for it and just wanted to make a sacrifice for the Lord, but because there was a restlessness in you and you were longing for something better than that. Many people get to a place when they look at their family history and they see alcoholic after alcoholic after alcoholic or drug addict after drug addict or whatever other corrupt thing goes on in their family and they long for something better. A young man in Baton Rouge, Louisiana named Trey Pearson's salvation prayer was, Lord, if You could just give me a normal life, I would serve You all the days of my life. From the time he was a very young man, his father began giving him acid. He got to a place before he was 13 that he could not tell the difference between the world on the acid trip and the real world. He did not know which was which. But in the midst of that, he became discontented with his circumstances and cried out, Mighty God, if You could just give me something better than this, I would serve You. And although he was tripping on acid at the time, he said he saw, and this is not something I read in a book, he's my friend, something that looked like a dove appeared before him and pierced his chest. And from that moment forward, his life began to change. And the little boy who was stoned all of the time was suddenly in love with Jesus and his life was being set straight. And what he had wanted that was just a normal life, it didn't come in a moment. Isn't it funny? We sinned for 30 years and want it to be fixed in three days. There was a restoration process in his life. I remember one of the things that broke his heart the most is he went to go get a job. And they had physical requirements for the job. And he was unable to lift the weight that was required. And he said, if my body had not been broken from these drugs all of these years, I would be able to lift it. I said, well, your life is not over yet, Trey. It's not done yet. Give it a few months. You may yet be able to get that job. 
Saints, we're somewhere all in this process. There are things we're supposed to be discontent with. You could even say we're a fellowship of the discontented. All of us have come into this place because we've decided that the world system around us is not worth striving and dying for. There is something about it that has left us feeling hollow and wanting a better thing. Or else why are you here? Maybe here because somebody begged you to come. Maybe here because you're worried that a family member will be disappointed if you don't come. And yet I believe our God is big enough to use those emotions, those feelings, to get you into a place when you can see with His eyes how hollow the pursuits of the world are, how empty they leave you feeling. And there'll be such a powerful discontent there you will strive for something better. Turn with me to 1 Samuel and the 22nd chapter. Tell me when you're there. Let me give you some background before we read this. A young man named David who had been trained as a shepherd and was a musician and loved the Lord had simply trusted God when others would not. And so God began to elevate him during a time period where there was a wicked king. David had in fact been anointed as king. Anointed means that God's divine enablement was upon him. He was declared to be king, but he was considered a criminal. You may begin to see parallels between David and Jesus as we talk about this. Anointed by God as a king, but considered a criminal. And why? Because there was a wicked king who was in ownership of the kingdom, and he did not want to be displaced. Do you understand that this life and death struggle we are in is about displacing a rebellious power from this earth and advancing God's kingdom on the earth by submitting to His rule and authority everywhere we go. There was darkness over the whole creation and God interjected into it a force that He called light and it began to push and separate So that every day when you wake up and you see the sun drive out the darkness, you see what God is doing in His creation. He is displacing that which is evil. David was a king but considered a criminal. One of David's biggest problems is that he was considered a friend of sinners. He didn't fit in with royalty. He had a royal wife. But she thought he acted like a vulgar common fellow. David didn't hang out in the palaces. He was hiding in caves in places like Adullam. And the people that he was hanging out with were less than desirable. David was a king, considered a criminal, a friend of sinners. And the thing that marks his life at this point more than any other is he is being pursued by somebody that we might call the anti-king. David's declared to be king, but somebody else is already standing in that position. God's approval is no longer on that man. It's upon David. But we do not yet see in the present God's hand working in it. God said it was so. But when you look out, you don't see David as king. You see Saul as king. And you see Saul pursuing David. In the previous several chapters, he throws a spear and tries to pin David to a wall professes love for him and yet wants to kill him. 
None of you in your worldly relationships ever found such duplicities, did you? A young man who said he would love you forever until he got what he wanted and then he did not love you anymore. You never experienced that, I'm sure. None of us know what it's like to have a broken heart from the world for a pleasure promised that did not bring the peace you desired. I've become discontent with those things. And in 2 Samuel 22, actually 1 Samuel 22, I find hope. David left Gath and escaped to the cave at Adullam. This is the same cave later where men will risk their lives to bring him water. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. Declared by God to be a king and yet considered a criminal. And who are the only people that answered the king's call? Those who were in debt. Those who were in distress. Those who were discontented. What were they discontented with? Well, there was a tyrannical king who took their sons and daughters for war, who taxed them heavily for his chariots and horses and all the things that God said would happen if he was their king. And they were distressed about it because they were receiving in themselves the consequences of their own actions. And they began to realize just how indebted they were. And they wanted a change. Now there's a fine line between a rebellious nature and a nature that wants a revolution. In fact, we tend to call it a rebellion if it doesn't work and a revolution if it does. I've decided that I am discontent with this world system. I am discontent to the point where something in me wants to rebel from my base nature. I'm setting my heart on the fact that it won't end as a rebellion in my nature, but a revolution into something better. Steve was speaking with me here recently about the company that he works for and that it's owned by the British and how much fun the Americans and the British have with teasing each, over, each other over a minor disagreement several hundred years ago that resulted in the birth of a new and beautiful nation that is the light of the world in our time. If the American colonists were squashed, it would have been considered a mere rebellion. If they succeeded, it's a revolution. And something new was birthed out of it. This morning, I want you to learn and become discontent with what you see around you to the place where something in you recoils from it. You begin to hate what is evil to the point where you will cling to what is good and it will revolutionize your life. The King of Kings did not go out and find those who were happy with their lifestyle. He did not go out and find those who were politically connected, those who could bring Him authority and power and wealth. He looked for those He could do the most for. Saints, that's what we have a collection of here today. We have a collection of people who have realized that there are debts in your life that you couldn't pay, that have become distressed over struggles within you and outside of you, who have become discontented with the status quo, 
One of the dangers in Christianity as you move forward is that apathy doesn't set in and you don't learn to settle accounts. Meaning, oh well, that's been here so long, I'm just going to lay down next to it. I won't bother it and it won't bother me. You came to the king because you were in distress. And now that he's giving you relief, it's no time to stop. It's time to push in. Turn with me to Luke 7. Tell me when you're there. You'll be making a right in your Bibles. Jesus, our King, but considered a criminal. Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Glory, yet His closest friends are the indebted, the distressed, and the discontented. Jesus, the King of God, but pursued by the evil one at every turn to the point where He yielded His life only to take it back up again. A question was asked. You all in Luke 7? Let's look at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have a dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. If you've ever seen pictures where Jesus was eating in a Western-style table with four legs under him and his elbows on the table and he had blonde hair and blue eyes, what you're looking at is a religious farce. It never occurred. Never, not at any time. In our popular movies where they speak in Aramaic because they're trying to be authentic, but they depict Jesus sitting at a table and make jokes about Him inventing a Western-style chair. You need to know, it never occurred. The culture that the Bible speaks to us out of is not our own. And we cannot remold the Bible into our own image so that it's more palatable to us. This entire Christian walk is about becoming discontented with what is palatable to us and accepting the true way of life from God. We call it, call it following the way. Jesus reclined at tables because they ate at triclinians on their left elbow with their right hand. If that's new to you, stick around. I'll teach you lots of things like that that you wouldn't know. And it will make the Scripture make more sense to you. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had had a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought, brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. In the ancient world, we did not have indoor plumbing. We had to go to a well to get water. We kept basins of water in stone jars, like that one over there. When you entered someone's house, it was customary. It was something that was kind, like a handshake or a hug, to pour water on their feet to put oil on their head, fragrant oil. This was like perfume. It was something to mask body odor when you had walked 30 miles to be somewhere. These were common, decent things to do. This woman had no basin of water there. It was not her house. 
but she bought something that was so almost incalculable as far as its financial cost to her that it's unbelievable. And she got on her face and washed his feet with her tears and her hair. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, I want to warn you, conversations with self are a bad idea. Self is a bad guy. Ignore what Freud and everybody else has told you about self and adopt what the Bible says. The Bible says we put off the old self and we put on Christ. Conversations with yourself are a bad idea. Have your conversations with God. Have it with the Word. But don't debate it among yourself. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Wow. Who did he say it to? Himself. And yet Jesus answered him. There's some indication in the Scripture that this event actually occurred in the third year of Jesus' ministry. There's some indication in the Scripture that this Pharisee actually became a leper. His name is Simon. We know that later in the Scripture, a woman breaks an alabaster jar over Jesus' feet in a house of a man named Simon who happened to be a Pharisee. So it might be reasonable to connect these dots. And Jesus said that what she did for him would be told for generations to come because it was a beautiful thing. And this Pharisee thinks it's something that is ugly. Tell me, teacher, he said. Actually, first, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly. I want to ask you this morning as you begin to contemplate the Word, as you look into the mirror of God's Word and examine your own life, how big was your debt that was canceled? And if it doesn't seem very big in your eyes, perhaps you haven't made a fearless moral inventory. Because God searches even the motives behind your thoughts. You may look okay on the outside. We have a way of doing that in America. We have a way of saying, I'm okay, you're okay. Don't look too close into my life and I won't look too close into your life. But this Bible that we study is interactive. It is much more piercing than that. The Bible says that God's Word will separate your joints, the bone from the marrow. A man's thoughts, his innermost thoughts would be judged by the Word. How big was your debt? But that's what drove you to Jesus. At some point you said, you know, I was not built to carry this. I want to warn you, Christians, the fact that God's forgiven your debt means you're supposed to love Him more, not less. We have a way of laying at the Lord's feet our consequences of our own wicked actions. Look what the Lord's done to me, but when you look, it is really your choices that have done it. We have a way of forgetting what He has forgiven in our life when it comes to comparing our lives with someone else's. 
We forget that we were forgiven 500 denarii and we find a speck in our brother's eye and say, oh, how could he do that? Well, what if the secrets of your heart were laid bare? What if we had Big Brother's cameras on you with no editing? What might we find? When you get in the car and leave here and go face traffic on the way to Luby's, will the secrets of your heart be revealed? Those who have been forgiven much are supposed to love much. You know what? That makes me aspire to be a teddy bear. There's no point in testimonies that glorify people's past as if somehow you're more righteous now because you were more wicked before. It's all ridiculous fodder is what it is. But I can tell you Eric is firmly aware of exactly what rolls around in his heart. And I rebel against that to the point where I want there to be a revolution in my life. The king has offered me a chance to be forgiven my debt, to be relieved of my distress and to come and serve Him. Turn with me to Matthew 18. There's an attitude that we must keep in mind. be lots of Bible turning today. Get used to it. It will never change. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus. Actually, let's start in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter was a lot like my son Gabriel. Gabriel says, Dad, I can watch that TV. That was supposed to be a question. There's no question mark in it. He said, Dad, we can go play football. Nods his head, winks his eye at me. Peter asked this question to Jesus. He said, how many times do I forgive my brother, Lord? Seven? Let's just go ahead and stretch and make a suggestion for the Lord in case he's slow of thought and having difficulty coming up with an answer. Let's give him a multiple choice question. And yet, isn't that what we do? Lord, in this difficult situation, do you want me to do this or this? There is no none of the above on the test, is there? Because one of the things that we struggle with now that our debts are canceled is imposing the Lord's name on our will. What I want to do is this, so now that I belong to the Lord, He'll bless it. Saints, our lives belong to Him. Listen to the point of this parable. I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Very Hebraic way to say a billion Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. What does the king want to do? Settle accounts. We serve a king who is considered a criminal, but he finds friends among sinners because his message is the king wants to settle his account with you. Get out of your mind that God wants to hurt you, that He wants to crush you, or all He's put you through. I am so sick of hearing that. The king wants to settle his account with you. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to hurt you. He doesn't want to slay you. He doesn't want bad things for you. He wants to settle His account with you. And in the end, He wants 100% of you and wants you to be 100% invested in Him. That's what He wants. And He started by giving you a clean slate. And He judges your heart by watching the way in which 
you treat other people. See, He demonstrated it to us. He forgave us every problem up front in the beginning. Now He finds out whether His Word's taken root in our hearts by what we do with other people. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot. In Louisiana, we would say that's a certain kind of load. And it might take two trips. Was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Aren't you glad there's no debtor's prison in this country? Some of your finances are pristine. And I'm proud of you. Personally, I've had some struggles in my life. I'm glad my credit bureau is not on the screen for everybody to read. But I'll answer any questions that you want to know. Because our weaknesses show God's strength. And I'm better today than I was then. That's the hope of Christianity, isn't it? I know what it's like to have debts I cannot pay. To put my head between my knees and cry because I did not see any way to make it. To go to my church leaders and friends and get beautiful pearls of wisdom like, well, if you make more money, then thank you. I'll try not to fall in this hole again, okay? The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. Why patient? Why patience? Be patient with me. What does that imply? It implies that this man will in some way change the circumstances. He didn't say, just forgive me. He didn't say, I just need you to cancel it. He said, be patient. It expresses a desire on his part to change. It's given time. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. What God is looking for on our part, what He wants when He puts you in the Holy Spirit crosshairs, is for you to say, Lord, if you will be patient with me, I will not abuse your mercy. Instead, if you show me mercy, I will change. This is called repentance. And it's why our ministry is called life Changing ministries. And the beautiful thing about Him is He forgave the debt anyway based on the intent of their heart. He didn't even require them to pay it back. He just required them to want a change of circumstance. Saints, do you remember what it's like to be in a place where you would give anything just to have a new view of life? For you to look and all you saw was dismal, no hope, no fun, just pain. All the pursuits of your flesh hollow. If you never got there, well, let me leave it positive. When you've been forgiven much, you love much. If you don't love much, maybe you just didn't need to be forgiven much. You're so holy and I feel so sorry for you. I really do. I don't want my children to go spend time with the swine. I don't want them to eat pods with the pigs. But I want them to come to a place where they understand that they're utterly detestable before God and He is willing to forgive that debt if they just want to change. And in my own life, one of the ways...
that I was moved to salvation was my friend who was a goody two-shoes. Y'all do know what that is, right? We had all kind of names for him. But he was a straight-A student and an excellent athlete and never disobeyed his parents to the point where he looked as if he was totally enslaved to their will. And when he walked an altar and fell on his face to be saved, I was ashamed because I knew his character was better than mine. I knew that, and I was ashamed. I thought, if he needs to be saved, how much more do I? But I learned that God could take even that wicked circumstance and do something with it, because I have never forgotten how much I need to be saved. Not just then, but today too. And it gives me mercy when I deal with you. And what's funny is what we like to talk about is how hard Eric can be in counseling, how direct I can be. It's become something of a joke. What motivates my heart is the mercy God has shown me. But I know that there is a real danger in taking that mercy lightly. And I know that most of the church starts off with a genuine experience in Jesus and then drifts into something that is putrid and dead and bears no life. You know the rest of this story, don't you? What does this servant do? He goes out and chokes somebody who owes him far less money. And the master forgave his debt, didn't he? Forgave him. But in the end, his debt didn't stay forgiven. He got thrown in jail. You can put that in your SBC doctrinal book if you like. His debt was once forgiven and later reinstated because of his behavior. How about that? And when I said SBC, I did not mean the phone company. Turn with me to Romans 13. There is a debt that needs to remain. Have you ever desired to relieve someone, relieve someone of that internal struggle? They just don't feel secure? I want to encourage you. Let them struggle. Salvation is worked out with fear and trembling. And if you have doubt, you should. There is only one way to alleviate it. Get before God the Father and let His Spirit, Spirit bear witness with yours. Once that happens, you won't care what the person on your left or right thinks because you will know from God Himself. If you've not gotten that, you need to be fearful. You need to be scared. You need to be worried that there is an expectation before you of nothing but fiery judgment. Hey, but we serve a loving God. Yes, He loves me enough to burn you and not make me stand next to you for an eternity if you will not walk right. The offer has gone out to the whole world. If you are distressed, if you are discontented, if you do not like your way of life, there is a king who looks to be a criminal now, but he's a friend of sinners, and in the end he will reign over all. All he wants is for you to stand by him in his trial and change your way of life. How good news would that be? How good news is that? In Romans 13, verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. There is supposed to be something ever before your mind when dealing with each other. Uh Uh-oh, Jen's in the room. When dealing with my spouse about some perceived shortcoming that she really doesn't have, but appeared. It was a perception. 
what is supposed to come to my mind first is the debt that I have to love her. When Jesus washed everybody's feet at the Last Supper, He didn't say you were blessed because you saw it. He said you are blessed if you go and do this. The church has become confused, bewildered, like a teenage child that heard what they wanted to hear in the parents' instruction. We think we've become blessed because we know these things. We are blessed when we do them. And she and I, you and I, you and each other, we all have a continuing debt. You're indebted to one thing. All debts canceled save one. To love each other. How well do you do with that? Do you love only those that love you? Do you throw feasts for only those who will throw you a feast? One religious leader told me, I can only honor people who honor me. I thought to myself, that makes you soul. Where does the gospel stand here? How do you really show the gospel? Through what you know or through what you do? What we do should be a reflection of what has been done for us and your debts were canceled. You were loved when you were still disgusting. I've become discontented with what the world has to offer. I want something new, something more. Turn with me to Corinthians. Did you hear me a minute ago mention somebody who reminded me of Saul? How did David treat Saul? The guy threw spears at him, and what did David do? Refused to dishonor him because his position was anointed by God. Do you think that was an inward struggle in David? Yeah, he repented openly for cutting off the corner of his garment because it was wrong. If you can identify somebody in your life who should have been better to you than they were, what debt do you have to love them? And if you love only those that love you, what reward will you have? Paul said, I don't need anything from you. I'm looking for what can be accredited to your account in heaven. And I'm telling you, there is no way to get credited to the account in heaven if you are not loving those who are nearly unlovable. That's a tall order, saints. That is a tall order. I have some neighbors right now that I'm struggling to love. I was recently brought out to the yard to look at a travesty in human existence. Something horrific. It's not Guantanamo. It's not ethnic cleansing in the Congo. It was two indentions in my neighbor's grass. No torn up dirt. No displaced blades of grass. Only grass that was somewhat folded. My first reaction was something that is my sworn enemy. I'm supposed to be rebelling against it. I'm supposed to be causing a revolution in my life. It was anger at the absurdity of this situation. I'm spending my life trying to feed widows and orphans and I'm being berated over folded grass. But you know what? This is where the Gospel's found. 
And it's the litmus test for whether or not it's real. Do you love only those that love you? Or will you love the unlovable? Then the question becomes, how, Lord? How do I do it? And you have to wait for Him to show you. But when He does, if you are slow in showing mercy, God will be slow in slowing you mercy. He said, with the measure that you dole it out, that's how you'll receive it. So I am looking for the opportunity to show mercy to this man. Because I need it. Have you all not needed it? I need it. I needed it yesterday. I needed it the day before. I needed it an awful lot the day before that. And I might need it again before the day is over. So I'm looking for any chance I can to spend some of it. Are you looking for a chance to love people, to show mercy? Do you remember what you were when you were called? The Apostle Paul reminds us. You love the Apostle Paul, don't you? I love the Apostle Paul. Put another line in the good book, baby. Right? You love him. Why do you love him? Because all he suffered for you, right? You love him because he was shipwrecked and he didn't die. He was snake bit and he didn't die. He was flogged with a cat of nine tails and he didn't quit. He was beaten with rods and he didn't quit. He was imprisoned and he didn't quit doing what? Spending his life for you. He said, it'd be better for me to die, but it'd be better for you that I live. You love him for this, don't you? Well, listen to what he says about you. Not many of you, this is at the end of the first chapter, 26th verse, not many of you were wise by human standards. that make you feel nice? Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You need to understand something. The beauty in David's story when we get to the end is that he did not have 3,000 trained chosen men like Saul. He had the distressed, the indebted, the discontented. The glory of the Gospel is not that God came in with superior force. The glory of the Gospel is not that God had the Germanic tribes unite beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Viking-looking people and go crush the enemies of God. This is not the glory of the Gospel. The glory of the Gospel is that God takes little shepherd boys and overcomes giants. The glory of the Gospel is that God takes your broken life and does something beautiful with it. But as He begins to do something beautiful with it like that wicked servant, many times we look at how nasty our neighbor's lives still are. I encourage you to look in the mirror of the Word. None of you are righteous save the blood of Jesus. None of you. The very best you can offer God is like something that should be thrown away. And that's the nicest way I know how to say it. That's pretty well the cleaned up Eric version of what Isaiah said. It's like something that needs to be discarded. We ought to walk around then the most humble loving people on the planet. How are you doing with that? How are you doing? <laughs> Not so well sometimes. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. God chose what? God chose what? 
What does that make you? I'd be a fool for Christ any day. Because it's in my foolishness, in my ineptness, in my brokenness that God's power is displayed. Why is it that after He cleans us up, we forget where we've come from? Why is it that after He cleans us up, we forgot how we got clean? Why is it after He cleans us up, we take pride in our high positions? I need you to remind me of this in the future. I'll need you in love to look at me and remind me of where I've come from. And I can promise I will remind you. The problem with the living sacrifice is as God does things through us, we allow our name to become great. I love John the Baptist because he said, I must decrease and he must increase. A man can only receive that which he was given from heaven. How many men started off preaching on sawdust floors only to end up in marble palaces and in the end failed God? I do not want it. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. You feeling good about yourself now? And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. We are in a battle to displace a worldly kingdom. We're in a battle to displace an anti-Christ spirit in the world. This says when you're slapped, slap back. When you're insulted, return the insult. When you're hated, hate more. And the way we displace that, the way Christians go to war is not with the weapons of the world but with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, we pull down every pretension, every argument, everything that exalts itself against our king. You're going to find out something about David's army. They started off distressed, discouraged, and discontented, but they didn't stay there. The reason we can look and say, not many of you were wise is because they had become wise in God's eyes. The reason we could look and say not many were influential is because by the power of the Holy Ghost, they had become influential. The reason we could say not many of you were noble in birth is because they had been born again of the most royal blood that there could be. We are in the process of being transformed, revolutionized. But we never need to forget how this process happens and what drew you. And when you see people who are broken, what you're supposed to see is opportunity, not despise their weakness. It's a hard thing to do. First time you meet somebody and you think, wow, they got it all together. And you got your rose-colored glasses on for them. Then you find out they squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube and for some reason cannot put toilet paper back where it goes and leave their clothes laying around. And whatever else they do, do you think less of them? I do. But I'm rebelling against that nature. Everybody looks good at their first date. Right? We have prom-like relationships. We dress up with each other once a year. You know? You're beautiful. Aren't I beautiful? Oh, stop it. Really. Stop it. Aren't I beautiful? Stop it. And what God wants are the kind of intimate relationships where it's as if we were all married. We are aware of each other's weaknesses and flaws and glorifying God for them 
Because despite all Eric's inadequacies, God still moves. This brings glory to the king rather than the subjects of the kingdom. But what have we trained ourselves to do? Hate and hide weakness. Hate it and hide it. Hate it and hide it. Refuse to be healed. Let's move on. The point of Corinthians is if you're going to boast about something, boast about what God's done. When's the last time you really, really, like a braggart, boasted about God? Was there a little bit of you in it? Or were you really boasting about God? Look how the Lord's blessed me. I did this, and I did that, and then I did this again. Really, are we talking about the Lord's blessing, or are we talking about your grand accomplishment? See, because the Lord's blessing says, I blew it here, and God came through anyway. And then I struggled here, but I only got it about half right, and God acted as if I got 110% right. We need to learn to brag on God rightly and leave less of us in it. The problem is most of us have never really seen this done. It's all right. God's raising up a new generation. If you've lived a life blaming everybody else for what's not right, get it right yourself. Wait till you have children that turn their fingers and point at you. In Luke 14, we're not going to read it. We learn about the cost of being a disciple. We learn that there are lame people. Dude, that's so lame. That Jesus calls, but He does not leave them lame. Turn with me to Luke. Well, turn with me to Matthew 11. Let's do that. Y'all bored with me? So if I refer to Luke 14, and you don't happen to have it memorized, and I'm sure you do, but if you didn't, what would you be doing after the service? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Sometime in the next week, if I'm telling you that there's a concept we're building on out of Luke 14, but not taking the time to uh, read it, wouldn't that be a good thing to do? Or are your Bibles just an ornament, an icon, a fixture in your home? I know. You were leaving them here because this is the Bible storage facility, right? When I said hide the word in your heart, I did not mean hide it from your heart. I meant hide it in your heart. Read the word. It'll change your life. Without reading it, it's like you're going into battle, proclaiming yourself Rambo, and you have brought no weapons and have not been trained. You in Matthew 11? Luke 14 is a story, a parable, where a king invites people to a wedding, and they don't come. And so he sends out a servant, and he invites the lame, the blind, and the crippled to come to the wedding, much like David drew to himself the discontented, much like Jesus was a friend of sinners. And he says, if you're not willing to leave everything and follow me, in fact, if you're not willing to take up your cross, you can't. You cannot be my disciple. He even says that your love for him must make your love for your parents, brother, sister, and all, look like hate. That's all in Luke 14. It'd be worth reading sometimes. A good reminder of what you've signed up for. Why is it that the lame would be willing to accept that invitation? 
Why would the indebted be willing to accept that invitation? Because they were discontent with the life they already had and they just wanted something new. I have a relative who came and sat in this church for a few years and I still have great hopes for him. But the problem is he's not truly discontented with his life. He wants a little of this one and a little of that one and God is a jealous God. He will not let you come to him on his terms. Let his life be a warning for you in your life. God will not allow you to mix two kingdoms, period. One has to drive out the other. You cannot serve two masters. You better make up your mind. Lest you be found lukewarm and get spewed from God's kingdom. If you've been told that you're just sitting pretty and safe, you were lied to. Obedience is required for salvation. Obedience. Success is not required. You do not have to be successful, but you do have to be obedient. Do you understand the difference? If I tell Judah to go move my truck and he backs off 20 feet and rams his head right into it and drives his feet, but it doesn't move an inch. He was obedient. Not very smart, but obedient. It's my job to give him keys and show him how to back it up and do those things. God wants your obedience. He'll forgive your failure. He will not forgive you not being obedient. If you'd like to have a long theological debate about that, come see me any night of the week. I live for this stuff. Bring your Bible. Bring your elders, your pastors, whoever you like. Whoever wants to sit and fight for your right to sin will question their motives and let God's Word judge their heart. I want to fight for your right to be holy. God wants to change your life. In Matthew 11, starting in verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Why do you think John is asking this? John is the very one who announced, I'm not worthy to untie this guy's sandals. I can't carry his water. Why is John concerned? The same reason you're concerned when you face circumstances. Jesus is not acting as He expected Him to. How often has God just not worked out things the way that you thought? How often? How did you react to that? Did you rebel against Him for a while, do it your own way? And then when things didn't go well for you, say, look what the Lord's done to me? Hmm? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of Me. Who could fall away seeing blind eyes open? Hearing when they were deaf before. Who could fall away? Because He didn't do it in the way that they expected. I want you to understand something. The kingdom has a message that goes out to the discontented, the lame, the crippled. But the message is one that is revolutionizing, that is transforming. It will change your deaf ears so that they hear. It will change your blind eyes so that they see. It will take away your discontent and despair and replace it with joy and peace 
and contentment. You are drawn because you are dissatisfied. But when you are encouraged, discipled, and taught by the message, you are somebody who is content in every situation. The Gospel does not call the crippled and lame and keep them crippled and lame. So many of us have scars and injuries in this room. And it draws us to Jesus and thank You, mighty God, for allowing weakness in me that pushed me to You. But shame on me if I stay that way. This life is supposed to be renovating us. John began to doubt and Jesus said, you go tell him the fruit that you receive. Tell him he's blessed if he doesn't fall away. That's almost insulting, isn't it? Wouldn't you think Jesus would have run right there and begged John not to fall away? You need to forget, not forget something. Jesus is the ultimate. He's as high as it gets. He is the loftiest thing there is in the universe. Just because He dwells with the lowly and the brokenhearted does not mean He's not worthy of that respect. He doesn't owe you a thing. He already canceled your debt. What you are in the position of now is owing Him something. And we act as if God owes us this and owes us that and we've contrived theological scenarios in which we can take His Word and use it like a crowbar to make Him do what we want Him to do. But you said, Lord, we have forgotten that He forgave us everything and owes us nothing. It's you who owes Him something. What is your debt? Love. That is your debt. And what happens is as you adopt that attitude, you start to notice that the ears that don't work so good start to work good again. The eyes that don't see rightly, see rightly. Maybe we've been blinded by our own ambitions. Maybe we've been deafened by the sound of our own voices. This message is supposed to change us from lame to fame. But the fame doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Your life is supposed to be something that people look at and say, I remember when that dude was crippled. But by the power of God, He walks. One of the more powerful testimonies I know of is a man who I ran from in every church setting. I was 18, 19 years old, and when I saw him, I thought, oh, my God, deliver me now. Because he was weaned on lemons. There was no victory anywhere in his life. He was hurting all of the time and content only with one thing to make us all hurt as well. And he could quote Scriptures about mourning with those who mourned, and I was not well trained enough in the Scripture to know whether he was right or wrong. I just knew I didn't want to be around him. He sucked the life out of the room when he walked into it. But in a few years of being trained and revolutionized, taught to fight, he left his discontented way of the world and embraced the way of the King of Kings and became a mighty warrior full of encouragement and praise. And what he spoke was only that which was helpful for building others up. And then I was ashamed of myself that I had no part in that process because I was a coward. What opportunities are you missing all around you? 
Do you run from those in need or do you run to those in need? Are you the good Samaritan or are you the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road? Knowing that your debt was canceled will help you run to the aid of someone else who is still suffering under the weight of theirs. Turn with me to Isaiah 35. We're going to have to wrap this up, but there's some good things that we just have to get to. That's good. The front row's fast. The front row's fast. I'd tell you they stole my sermon notes and were cheating. Except there's only about three sermon notes and they were written right before you walked in. When the Word is a way of life and not a lecture, you hear me? When the Word of God is a way of life and not just a lecture, you don't need a script. You talk about your life. You talk about your weakness and you glorify God in it. From lame to fame. Look at Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Strengthen the what hands? Steady the what kind of knees? The knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Is this an accept them as they are message? I'll accept you because you are discontented with your way of life and want to change it. I will take your feeble knees and make them strong. That's what God's saying. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance. Put that in your theology. With divine retribution, He will come to save you. Then... Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God is drawing to Him all those who are in great need because He's going to meet the need. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Sounds like He's going to fix everything that's broken, doesn't it? And a highway. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. I used to have a boss, female boss, who was very fond of saying she took the high road. Do you know what the high road really is? Holiness. The high road is not moral superiority. The high road is not that you didn't stab somebody through the heart when you had a chance. The high road is being holy. I don't think she knew that. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. There is a way coming to the earth that is like a highway, a way to travel from the discontentment of this world to the shalom that's in the kingdom. But you have to walk in holiness to walk on it.
wicked fools will not go about on it. Now, I didn't call anybody a wicked fool, but the Bible sure does. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it, for they will not be found there. Only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. I have lots of thoughts that I would like to tell you. Many times when we look at Luke 14, what we see is religious Israel that rejected the Messiah. And all of us, the weak, the lame, the crippled, rushed in and accepted Him. First off, the Bible says that He bound all men over to sin so that they could all be saved. We Gentiles who are blind bumped into Him by accident and He saved us. Jews who thought they had no need of healing will be found to rush to the Lord themselves lame and healed. Michael speaks of it. Zechariah speaks of it. Isaiah speaks of it. And I don't have any more time to speak of it. This Bible message is about people admitting their faults, coming to the King, and being transformed. Hebrews 12, 7-13 says, Strengthen your feeble knees that you may be healed. It tells you to strengthen your knees that you would be healed. This Gospel message takes you from being lame to being famous. It takes you from being discontented and dismayed and dissatisfied, a restless longing for better circumstances, and it transforms you into something. We're going to close with these couple of scriptures. In 2 Samuel 23, let's look at those same men one book later. Second Samuel 23, starting in verse 8. What kind of men were drawn to David? Y'all can tell me. Discontented. Indebted. What else? Distressed. The dregs of society. Who were they following? A king who was considered a criminal, persecuted and running for his life a friend of sinners. Do you see any parallels there after reading New Testament stories? You were following a king that is not yet sitting on a visible throne. You're following a king that died like a criminal. You were drawn to him because you were indebted and distressed and he's promised to forgive it. He's being pursued by a worldly king who wants him and his followers dead and has been killing us for thousands of years for one purpose, to become just like these followers of David. Verse 8, These are the names of David's mighty men. What were they before? Distressed, discontented, discouraged, dissatisfied, indebted. What are they now? Mighty men. You're not supposed to stay crippled, saints. You should quit telling stories of how you were hurt and when you were hurt. Get over it. Your debts were forgiven. Forgive everybody else. Let's start fresh. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, Bashabeth, Etekamite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. If you've ever wrestled or played football or been in any sporting event where you were locked in combat with someone else, you know that it is no easy thing to overpower even one person. And he raised his spear and killed 800. Do you know how that's possible? 
His name means He who sits in the council of God. What He was was distressed and discouraged and indebted. But after following David, instead of being the dregs of society, He was somebody who sat in on the council of God. He learned from David. And He became something mighty. Who gets the credit for that? God. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Doadai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamem for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Everybody else runs and retreats. He stands until his hand cramps around the sword and they see a victory. He was discouraged, dissatisfied, discontented, did not like life. But after spending a few short years with David, he became somebody that had such uncompromising trust in God he would not retreat when others ran. And he disobeyed his most natural instinct to drop his sword. And instead, his hand cramped around it. That sword is the Word of God. How does he do that? His name means God is my helper. If you sit in on the counsel of God, if you allow God to be your helper in every situation, you're no longer just somebody who's discontented with the world system. You're somebody who's becoming productive in another kingdom. From lame to famous. That's what God wants from you. He just wants to be the one who gets the glory for it. Verse 11. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, from Texas A&M. When the Philistines banded together at the place where there was a field full of lentils. Those are beans, as disgusting as I think they are. They're full of protein and they feed God's people. Israel's troops fled from them. If you define those words, what that really says is God's princes fled from the warlike people. Hmm. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. These men who were losers and who were the dregs of society became the iconic, heroic figures of their time. And you know the only thing that did that for them? They considered their debts canceled and they followed David with a sincere love. People who were considered criminals never plundered their enemies. Even Nabal, whose name meant fool, his servants watched David's men and said, we can't accuse them of anything. They didn't steal from us or even treat us bad. They were a band of criminals, but God made them saints by following King David. Jesus is doing the same thing with us. He's taking our weaknesses and making strengths. He is transforming our lives so that we're not rebellious. We're revolutionary. Shammah's name means astonishment and fame. People are astonished when they see that you're unyielding in your defense of God's Word and God's people, that you love it with all of your heart and with all of your life. Saul had 3,000 chosen, trained 
men. And David prevailed with 30. How about that? The story in the Bible is always the same. God doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your reputation. He doesn't really need anything that you have. He just wants to forgive you, fix you, and then get the credit for what He does in your life. And the more broken you are, the more credit He gets. So quit striving to look like you have it all together and just be real. Micah 7.8 is quoting a proverb. And in Micah 7, he says, Don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I've fallen, I will rise again. And he's quoting a proverb that says, "Though It's Proverbs 24.16. says, Though a righteous man falls seven times. That's complete failure. Seven is completion. Though a righteous man has completely fallen, he will rise again. There's hope for us, saints. There's hope in every area of our lives. Maybe you have not lived this well. Maybe you have re-indebted yourself. You ever paid off all your credit cards only to use them again after you promised you wouldn't? Or am I the only one that does that? Okay. Well, I've done it spiritually too. But you take note. When I fall, I get back up. Because God's righteousness compels me forward. Your homework, you get homework in this church, is 1 Peter 2, starting in 11 through the end of the chapter. You know why? He tells us how we should live. Lives of love. No longer crippled but healed. Healing others. Loving everybody all around us. Friends, I hope you're encouraged this day. hope you're encouraged to continue pressing forward into the kingdom of God. Remembering where we've come from and now being transformed into mighty men who will defend fields and freeze to the sword and pick up a spear and knock down the enemy. That's what God wants of you, every one of you. Did any of those three mighty fighting men, any indication in the descriptions we read that they were very concerned about themselves? An amazing thing happens when you get concerned about other people, you find success in whatever you do. Stand up and let's pray.